Hello, and welcome to Clinical Nutrition Notes, a podcast where we will speak with guest experts and opinion leaders about the art and science of clinical nutrition. Brought to you by Nestle Health Science Canada. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for education purposes. I'm your host, Bethany Hopkins, Medical Affairs Manager with Nestle Health Science. Today, we'll be talking with Peter Lamb. Thank you for joining us, Peter. In your nutrition practice, you're involved in the management of many individuals with dysphagia, their families, and caregivers. In our last conversation, we talked about dysphagia, how this condition presents, who may be affected, and some of the challenges dysphagia may pose. Today, we'll continue to explore dysphagia, really focusing on assessment and management considerations for clinicians, or in other words, what we can do about dysphagia in clinical practice. Peter, can you begin by first describing approaches to identifying dysphagia? Absolutely. Um, Bethany, dysphagia is one of these conditions that is often under-recognized, under-diagnosed. Um, people consider it to be a natural part of aging, and we really need to be more diligent in the screening and assessment process. Um, you know, as we talked about before, when dysphagia is inadequately managed, it can lead to malnutrition, dehydration, negative health consequences that ultimately affects the individual's quality of life. Um, Interestingly enough, there were a couple of studies uh, published internationally um, that mention reasons for people not seeking treatment or management or assessment. Um, The first one being people are not aware uh, that treatment options or management options were available, which sounds really scary. Um, in the study, they also identified that 39% of those suffering from dysphagia thought they could not be treated. And then, um, you know, as I mentioned before, they, they, they thought that dysphagia was just a normal part of aging and there was no point uh, doing anything about it. Um, there was also a large percentage of people that just were not bothered enough by the problem to do something. Um, Travel and access sometimes was difficult uh, to find the clinicians that have the skills and experience. Um, It uh, also indicated that uh, some people believed treatment uh, was too time-consuming because they had to go back to multiple treatment sessions or assessment sessions. Um, And then sadly, uh, some people actually thought that the treatment uh, was too expensive or the management of it was too expensive. So I think as clinicians, we need to be aware uh, of these and and, and help those that are suffering from dysphagia to understand that they they do have options. So um, really, I think to start... Um, we need to screen more often for dysphagia just because we know that it's under-recognized. There are some good screening tools out there and some examples of the screening tools that are currently used by clinicians are things like the three-ounce water tests, um, you know, the uh, screening tool developed right here in Toronto, Ontario, the TORBEST, the EAT10 tool, Uh, And then there are other specific screening tools used for head and neck cancer population, uh, stroke population. I think clinicians just need to be aware uh, that not every screening tool will apply to all populations. 
and they need to be uh, mindful of which screening tools are sensitive uh, to identifying people with dysphagia for specific populations. So the screening tools um, also are not comprehensive assessment tools. They really just help us to identify uh, those with dysphagia and it's do they have the presence of or not. And then when we identify that they have the presence of, a thorough swallowing evaluation should be um, something that we do for these individuals. Thank you for that, Peter. You brought up some very interesting points about why people may not be you know, seeking treatment, which is really interesting for clinicians to consider. And, and clearly using screening tools that are validated and are for the you know, target population that you're working with is, is very important. So screening is, is clearly something you would advise. And, and as you mentioned, that's all that is. It's, it's a screen. So what comes next then in terms of the assessment part of this picture? So the assessment process um, is something that takes a, a little longer which involves looking into the individual's history, uh, their health status, what the reported symptoms are, um, may include even a review of current medications that they're taking and to see what the impact of those are on their reported symptoms. Um, It involves a review of their current diet, their management, whether it's texture modification or any therapeutic type uh, diet management, um, taking a very, very close look then at their eating, uh, drinking ability, what uh, compensations they may have taught themselves in terms of how to uh, more safely and efficiently eat and drink, um, evaluating their, their mealtime performance uh, in relation to endurance, efficiency, um, and just to note um, their, their ability to be able to get enough nutrition and hydration. Um, and then once that's done, uh, we would do a much more focused exam on uh, the structures that we had talked about earlier and the, the, the parts of the mouth and the tongue and the the throat uh, that's involved in the eating and drinking process. Uh, And this is often referred to as an oral mechanism exam, oral motor exam, uh, in some cases as a rudimentary oral exam, where we're looking now at the structures involved in eating and swallowing, the strength of the muscles, uh, the range of motion, the coordination. We would look more thoroughly at the person's oral condition, oral hygiene, um, note uh, how their vocal quality uh, and, and, and how it might change with, with eating and drinking. Um, look at their respiratory status and their ability to uh, cough and clear, just to make sure that if something happens to go the wrong way, uh, that they actually have the ability to expel that uh, so that we're not uh, putting somebody in a high risk of airway obstruction. So now that we've talked about the screening, the assessment. So what comes next in terms of, or what are some of the management strategies available in the clinician's toolbox once you've identified someone and have gone through that assessment process? So often, once we've identified someone's abilities, 
the goal really of the management is to try to see what we can do to best meet the person at their abilities. The most common practice that we know for management of dysphagia is texture modification of food and thickening of liquids. Um, a systematic review that was recently conducted by the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative has identified that um, this is the most prevalent management tool that clinicians are using. And so um, in our systematic review, it really, really showed that um, thickening of liquids help to slow down the flow for those who have coordination issues. And so um, those that aspirate thin liquids because of the fast flow, by using a thickening agent or thicker liquids, it does help them to swallow and minimize the risk of materials uh, entering their airway. Now, interestingly enough, um, there's also evidence that uh, was surfaced in the systematic review that showed us that we could actually thicken something too much because uh, in the older population of adults that suffer from dysphagia, their swallow tends to weaken over time and with age. And so if we have something that's too thick, that requires too much strength to propel, residue can actually be left behind, and that actually presents a risk of the materials being aspirated after the swallow takes place. Um, at this point, there is no particular evidence that says to us, you know, this thickness is perfect for this population or, you know, this particular condition. Um, all we really know is the fact that solid foods, foods that are less texture modified, and thicker consistencies actually require greater effort and greater strength. Um, and so when it comes to texture modifying foods and thickening liquids, um, clinicians really need to be mindful of the fact that we only modify the food or thicken the liquid to the extent to meet the person's abilities and let's not overdo it. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important comment and, you know, thicker isn't always better. And uh, certainly from a safety perspective, as you've outlined, and also from a palatability perspective as well, from the individual who's, you know, eating and drinking those foods. So increasing thickness and helping control flow is important um, as long as we don't go too far. Uh, now, Peter, when it comes to thickening liquids, there are a number of common agents on the market. There are, you know, general categories of starch-based thickeners versus gum-based thickeners, and there are differences between each of those. And what considerations should the clinician be aware of when they're thinking about using a starch-based product versus a gum-based product? So when it comes to thickening agents, I think people need to recognize that um, both starch-based products and gum-based products have a, have a, have a place in, in the management aspect of, of dysphagia. Um, the starch-based products um, tend to be more economical. So, um, you know, for those who are worried about finances and thinking that management and treatment may be too expensive, 
the starch-based products is often chosen for the cost, but people also need to recognize that with starch-based products, it does often alter the taste and sometimes palatability of the liquid that they mix it with. Um, because it's a starch, it does have an effect on uh, the glycemic response. And um, again, because it's a starch, um, it does have a caloric content associated with it. Now, having said all of that, the benefits of that is if somebody actually needs more calories within their diet because they can't eat enough, then the starch base uh, thickener might actually be beneficial for this individual. Um, the starch-based product is something that also allows more flexibility when it comes to thickening. So uh, suppose we thicken something and we uh, let it actually bloom to the desired thickness and we find that, gee, it's still not thick enough. Um, more thickener can actually be added to allow the product to become thicker. Now, on the contrary, with the xanthan gum thickener, um, we know that the xanthan gum thickener is, is much more taste neutral. Um, it uh, has a better eye appeal because it actually mixes up clear rather than the starch thickener that actually uh, you know, presents the, the uh, thickened liquid to be more cloudy. Um, it's more taste neutral. Um, the xanthan gum thickener, uh, the lovely part about it is it's resistant to salivary amylase. The starch will get broken down by the enzymes in our saliva, whereas the xanthan gum thickener uh, is not affected by that. Uh, the limitation then, you know, for the xanthan gum thickener is the fact that um, once it reaches an optimal thickness, because of the uh, thickening process, you really cannot add any more thickener to try to thicken the product further. So, um, you know, people have often said, gee, you know, I like the way the xanthan gum thickener behaves because it tends to feel more slippery and easier to swallow. Uh, whereas the starch-based thickener tend to feel a bit more gummy um, and can leave potentially more residue behind. So, um, as I said before, there's a place for both and clinicians just need to be aware of uh, what is of best benefit uh, for the individual that uh, they're supporting. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you brought up a good point too about um, preparation and mixing and so you know, I think it behooves clinicians as well to be thinking about that. And if they're working with individuals in the community and, and people that, you know, are preparing these for loved ones or for themselves, there's some education that goes with this, isn't there? You know, in, in terms of best practice Absolutely. and the do's and the don'ts yeah. that we need to be thinking of. Now, in terms of, of foods, as you're thinking, we're thinking about foods and I'm thinking about, you know, comfort foods, chicken soup, uh, cereal, uh, there are certain foods that um, we think as being safe, comforting, and for an individual with dysphagia, that may not be the case. Can you comment a little bit on that? Sure. Um, this is, again, one of these situations where 
um, you know, food is medicine. And uh, we often think, gee, you know, if we can help people eat more, they're going to get well. Uh, and a lot of times we, we, we think of these comfort foods or, you know, medicinal type foods such as chicken soup is good for the soul. Um, but for those with dysphagia, um, these actually may present to be the most challenging foods uh, just because we need to be able to manage both solid food in our mouth and thin liquids in our mouth at the same time. And think about a bowl of chicken soup. Think about the broth running to the back of someone's throat before they're ready to swallow the solids that are in their mouth. And, you know, same with a bowl of cereal. Uh, we might be thinking, gee, you know, we'll just give someone cereal because it's easy to eat. Um, but for those of us with no swallowing concerns, we can coordinate this and be able to time that swallow accordingly. But that excess milk that's in that bowl of cereal uh, can then be aspirated and cause difficulty. So we need to be mindful of things like mixed consistency foods, um, and when we're helping to modify foods to make it easier for people to eat, as I mentioned before, we need to be mindful of the fact that we should only be modifying the food to meet that person's abilities and not overdo it. Because we know um, that people eat food first with their eyes, and we do need to keep foods looking appealing. We need to keep foods, um, you know, enjoyable for people in all sense of eating. Yeah, a great point. And, and again, it comes back to that sort of that social aspect, the pleasure of eating that's, that's so important to people. One last comment before we, we, um, we end off, um, before my last question, I guess the last of the last, is we've been talking a lot about food, which of course is really important and something that we're very passionate about. Um, are there other things that we need to be thinking about when working with with individuals who have dysphagia beyond food and food and liquid? Oh, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, you know, food and liquid modification is is really only one aspect. And um, clinicians tend to choose this because they think it's easier to achieve. But sometimes we forget about the fact that um, we really do need to look at the person's mealtime abilities and their mealtime functioning. Um, are they seated in the right position? You know, are, is, is the head and neck positioned correctly to allow for the optimal angle for swallowing? Um, do they actually have the hand-eye coordination uh, to be able to get food from the table, from their uh, bowls, plates, to their mouth? Um, you know, are they able to see the food? Um, are there some environmental distractions that's actually causing them to not be focusing on the food or the drink? Uh, maybe we've overloaded the table with a uh, number of food items and drink items, and it actually creates, you know, quite a chaos and confusion for someone um, with cognitive abilities to discern uh, between edible and non-edible foods and, and, you know, the multitude of things that are in front of them. Um, there are rehabilitation um, exercises that can be done for those uh, that are able to be rehabilitated. Uh, there are positioning uh, things that we can do for uh, a person's head and neck, 
Um, by changing the position, we could actually change the mechanism of the swallow. Um, but again, this is something that should be done after a thorough assessment. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned structural issues earlier, and sometimes surgical interventions can be done uh, to help with the swallowing management. So um, really, I'd like to clear up that myth of, you know, dysphagia can't be treated. And we need to be aware that there are options out there, and it does go beyond food and fluid. Peter, I almost hesitate to say this, um, but you've given us a lot of food for thought, um, a lot of great information today. And, and as you just mentioned, you know, dysphagia is a serious condition for people. However, it is really helpful to know that there are tools to assist clinicians in screening, in identification, and then the management of those individuals and improving nutrition, hydration, as well as the considerations around the pleasure of eating. And, and quality of life, so thank you for that. Before we sign off, I would like to take a minute to ask you one last question so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us how you first became interested in the field of nutrition? Oh, Bethany, I think that, uh, I, I, you know, listeners are probably going to think this is, this is crazy for him to say this, but I, I really was not interested in the field of nutrition in my uh, sort of initial um, career path. Um, I was interested in food. I was, uh, interested in, uh, you know, helping, uh, people enjoy food. I started out my, uh, work life actually in a, uh, restaurant environment where I just thought it was so pleasurable to see people come and enjoy themselves eating and drinking. Never, ever even thought about entering the field of nutrition, uh, you know, Growing up as as an Asian child, uh, my parents always intended for me to become either a lawyer uh, or a doctor or an engineer. Um, so nutrition was not even something of of consideration. Um, but believe it or not, as 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 time evolved, um, I, I recognized that nutrition is so related to the enjoyment of of eating and drinking, which is really my passion. Um, and as a result, um, the stars all just lined up and, um, I somehow became a dietitian and, uh, focused in on the field of nutrition. And then now, uh, even focusing more of my energy into dysphagia and dysphagia management, uh, because I just absolutely love to see people enjoy eating and drinking. I, you know, that is an interesting story. And I didn't actually know that about you before, Peter, but I'm really glad that we're really glad that you found the field of nutrition. And with your passion for food and your experience in the food industry, they just lend themselves so nicely um, to the management of individuals with dysphagia and really keeping that pleasure of eating top of mind all the time and what we can do you know, to help um, is fantastic. So on that note, we will conclude this podcast. And I'd like to thank you, Peter, for joining us and thank all of our listeners. <laughs>